Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey guys, we are all in for a treat. Today's guest is Dr. David Sinclair, who we've had previously on the podcast. You have to check out that episode in the show notes. Uh, he is a professor in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School and the best-selling author of one of my favorite books titled Lifespan and quite simply one of the leading voices when it comes to all things longevity. And, you know, as I've been trying to make sense of COVID-19 and all the data and information out there, I kept on asking myself, I wonder what David Sinclair thinks. And, you know, finally I, I reached out and well, now we're going to find out what David Sinclair thinks. So David, welcome. Honored to have you here. Uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, when I think of COVID-19, there's so much coming at us in terms of data and information. And the, the, there was something recent with the Stanford study that people are referencing and, and people are excited about it. People are saying it's flawed. It's just one example. But I guess at, at the highest level, my question to you is what what data are you paying attention to? What do you think is you know useful versus useless? And what, what's interesting to you? Yeah, well, it's really been uh, drinking a fire hose for, for all of us, really. Uh, and the problem is that a lot of that water is is poisonous. Um, it's invalid. It's just made up. Some of it's bad science. Some of it's good science. Some of it's no science. Some of it could even be from another country for nefarious reasons. And so it's really what I found that I could do, uh, make myself useful, was to try to act as a filter so that only the, the purest of water makes it through to, to people who are looking for information. And so what I've noticed is that uh, more and more people are turning to these websites that actually have science in them. Now, if, if you've never looked at a scientific website, um, you should definitely do that, especially around this time of COVID-19. There are a couple of really great ones. Um, there's one called Med Archive, and the other one's called BioArchive. And Archive is spelled weirdly. It's R-X-I-V. But there you can see uh, these papers that are coming out every day. Now, that's, that's your main authority. Now, these have some caveats. For instance, they typically haven't been peer-reviewed. In other words, haven't been bashed to death by uh, other scientists so that they're, they're honed and perfected. But it's still information you can trust from scientists as opposed to pundits uh, or people just making stuff up for political purposes. There's another website which is very important, which is the, the basic home uh, go-to place for scientists, and that's PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D. Um, and so anybody can go there. It's free. And so for, I'll give you an example, Jason. Somebody wrote to me this morning and said, what do you think of – I was on Twitter. What do you think of uh, – uh, what was it? Scaled pulsatile light therapy? I'd never heard of this, I'll admit. Uh, but the reason I'd never heard of it is that it's not in science. It's, it's not part of science. So when I put those terms into PubMed, uh, then nothing came up. And that tells me, and it should tell anybody who does that, and it takes 10 seconds, that it's probably not scientifically valid. You know, and that's putting it mildly. And so is there anything that you know, is hitting the headlines 
you know, I, I referenced the Stanford study where essentially it said that, you know, more people were infected widespread than previously known. Uh, and there was a lot of chatter on that, you know, whether it's that study or just anything in general. And I get it. I get it. It's a very fluid situation. And, you know, this will release on Monday. We're recording on Thursday, uh, Thursday, April 23rd. Like, is there anything that you're, you're, you're saying to yourself, oh, this is interesting. Like, let's see where the data plays out here. Oh, for sure. Every day. Um, so what, what's interesting to me right now? Well, yeah, the, the prevalence is extremely important. The Santa Clara study that showed, oh, about 2.8% were infected. Now, there's a lot of scientists who are arguing that that's too high, that there were false positives, that it's not a true random sample. Uh, but I think it, it could be about the right ballpark. I know from the from people in the Middle East who I, I know, they do oh, about 50,000 tests a day on a population of 10 million. They say the prevalence is about, or at least the total number of cases uh, and immunity, is about 2%. So it's not far off. But let, let's look at the big picture here. 2% is not a lot. We still got you know, 98% of us who are still uh, naive uh, and ready to catch it if we go out. So that's that's important to know. You know, scientists do like arguing over minutia typically. The other thing that, that is evolving, so I, I wrote a newsletter. Uh, I have a newsletter that, that anyone can just get for free. I do that as, a, as you know, just my way of uh, educating. Uh, so the last, last newsletter that I put out said that we should pay attention to the mutations that are occurring in this virus. It's mutating about the same rate as flu which doesn't sound scary and it shouldn't be terribly scary. But the fact that it's mutating like flu raises the possibility that it'll, it'll be like flu, that every year we get another variety of COVID-19. Maybe it'll be called COVID-21 and COVID-24. But probably what's going to happen is that this may never be wiped out. That's going to be the case. The vaccines don't target a broad set of of these varieties so i'm paying very close attention to how it's mutating and where it's mutating because the the protein that's most important is the spike the spike coating because that's what the body mostly recognizes it's how it gets into cells so that's important um, the other things that determine whether covid 19 will be with us forever are things like how endemic is it and right now it's very endemic Another thing to consider is, is this uh, likely to produce strains that our bodies will not have immunity to? And there's some problems, right? We, we don't all mount a big immune response to COVID-19, especially if it's a mild case. Um, but even then, even if you have protection, it probably will wane after about a year or two, just like the flu and to common colds, which means it could keep coming back and back. And th so that's, to, for me, the scariest thought that the world will never be the same again. So, and without going down that dark rabbit hole, because I, I, I tend to agree, you know, I, I'm also an optimist and, you know, you brought up immunity and, you know, my point of view on life and the world is, you know, you, you can control what you can control. And when I think of immunity, I think, you know, that's something that's where health and wellness comes in. You know, we, we can do things to work on strengthening our immunity. And that leads me to my next question. Uh, both you and Rhonda Patrick, who I have tremendous respect for, shared something about vitamin D and 
you know, the role with immunity and then some interesting COVID uh, data. Could you elaborate a little bit more on vitamin D as we talk about, think about immunity? Yeah, so vitamin D, uh, anyone who has low vitamin D, D levels should get themselves some vitamin D. There's no disagreement between scientists and doctors that vitamin D is important for the immune system. And particularly those who are not going outside like the elderly or us during winter in the northern latitudes. We typically have quite low vitamin D levels and our immune systems are struggling. Our immune cells need vitamin D to be able to uh, function. Um, and so it, it, it's typically recommended between 2,500 and 4,000 units per day of vitamin D are uh, sufficient to bring adults to what doctors would call adequate levels of about 30 nanograms each day. Now you can go too much. Uh, I've got a friend that, that takes 10,000 units a day. He says he's fine. He hasn't become sick uh, with a cold in many years. Uh, but you don't want, to, don't want to overdo it. You can have too much vitamin D. Um, so basically people who have about 40 to 60 nanograms per mil in their blood uh, tend to have the lowest mortality but also do better when they get viral infections. Mm. So better vitamin D, you're better off to fight the infection. Used to be the virus. Exactly, exactly. Uh, vitamin D is good for many different reasons. Uh, it's not just immunity, it's, it's overall health. Uh, and that's actually one of the reasons I think that um, most adults in the Western world are aging more rapidly is that they let their vitamin D levels crash. Um, I didn't realize I was deficient in vitamin D myself, quite deficient. I mean, it, I should have been, should have been obvious because I was working in a lab for 25 years without going out much. Uh, but it, what surprised me was when I supplemented with 2000 units a day, it still wasn't sufficient to get my levels up to what doctors would call adequate. Wow. So I'm curious with regards to nutrients, supplementing, like anything else that you've like changed in your routine with regards to immunity and our COVID-19 world? Uh, I've started taking vitamin C again more, more routinely. Uh, I have a liposomal, liposomal version of that. There's good evidence that having vitamin C around is good for immune system as well. You know, it goes back to the 1970s, even before that Linus polling. My father used to give me a gram of it a day when I was a kid. But the, you look into it and the science says that's pretty pretty good. Uh, what else do I do? Well, How much vitamin so I'm, C? I'm, I'm curious. My, uh, I'd have to check the bottle. Uh, it's it's a decent-sized capsule, put it that way. Okay. Um, what else do I do? I'm taking alpha-lipoic acid as well. Uh, there's good evidence, first of all, that it'll boost your body's ability to make energy through mitochondria. But also there's a side effect of COVID-19, which is the loss of smell. Um, it's one of the first signs you've got the disease and that you've had it. Alpha-lipoic acid actually restores the ability. Uh, it's thought uh, if that happens. And, and so, so I'm taking it, first of all, as a preventative, but I also uh, would continue to take it if I did catch the disease. And in terms of other you know, more holistic practices, if you will. Uh, I read something recently the other day, again, from Rhonda Patrick, uh, 
saunas and heat in terms of immunity. So I'm curious, like, what's your thoughts on saunas and, and heat as it relates to immunity? And then I'll segue to the seasonality of of this virus and, you know, the, the summer versus the winter and maybe explain that a little bit. Yeah, when I was writing my book, I was pretty skeptical. My editor said, you've got to talk about this cold therapy or cryotherapy and talk about saunas. And I thought, oh, come on, I'm a, I'm a geneticist. I, I don't believe in that stuff, right? Uh, but I, of course, I looked into it and I was shocked that there's, particularly for saunas, um, less is known about cryotherapy because it just hasn't been studied sufficiently. But with saunas, um, I agree with Rhonda that evidence uh, suggests, it's not proof because it's hard to have a good placebo People know when they're in the sauna, right? It's hard to fake. Uh, but it does correlate with improved cardiovascular disease um, and immunity. And one of the reasons I think that it's probably working is this concept of hormesis, that if you give your body a perceived shock, uh, adversity, whether you're hungry or you're running or you raise the temperature in your lungs or your nose, your body will fight back and turn on what we have called longevity genes, which is what my career has been based on. So it's, it makes a lot of sense that sauna could could be beneficial during these times. Of course, if you overdo any form of hormesis, it'll backfire and your body will become weaker instead. And, and what about the seasonality as we think about temperatures of this virus and viruses in general, you know, cold versus warmth, just like explain that a little bit. Yeah, this is another one of those things, just like chloroquine as a drug, temperature as a as a prevention for the spread of this disease. Experts and non-experts go back and forth depending on how they feel and what the latest trend is. Um, I've always been of the opinion since I've looked at the data early on that COVID-19 spread will be reduced by increased temperature and increased humidity. It's based on a lot of reading, uh, but also some really interesting science that came out of China that analyzed where in the world COVID was spreading fastest. And then they, they basically corrected for the size of the population and all these other confounding uh, possible errors. And I think made a really strong case that temperature and humidity uh, reduced the R0 and the spread of the disease. And I'm seeing now after initial skepticism when I said that, that people are coming around and saying, even, even Tony Fauci from uh, the NIH is saying, yeah, Summer is going to be better, but be careful when the fall comes around again. Um, and we can talk about the science behind why the summer seems to reduce viral spread if you want. Yeah, please. So I was, I was wrong about my gut. So my gut told me over my life, oh, maybe it's because when it's summer, those little droplets that you sneeze out, they will evaporate and they'll go away. And it turns out that's not the thought to be the main reason why summer is uh, less conducive to viral spread. And I looked at it, and what, what these studies were done, I think about 20 years ago, is they put guinea pigs in cages and spread viruses through their cage. And they found that there was a correlation with temperature. So the warmer it was, uh, the bit, well, inverse correlation. So the warmer it was, the less the virus spread. But what was surprising to me was that high humidity was helpful. Uh, in preventing the spread, which is counterintuitive. If you think that those droplets are going to dry up, you'd expect dry air to be good. So what it turns out most likely is that 
the high temperatures and high humidity, um, they actually are improving your, your body's ability to fight the virus, right? That's an interesting way to look at it. And it turns out in dry climates and cold climates are typically dry, especially if you live indoors uh, with, without humidifiers on, your mucus in your nose and in your lungs will dry up. And then the virus can very easily access your cells and get in, uh, which I, I thought was a revelation. Mm. So you mentioned high temperatures, high humidity. Where my head went was our, our previous interview. We talked about high altitudes and flying. You weren't you weren't a you weren't a fan of flying and the TSA and all of that. I'm curious. Uh, one, do you either do you think that flying will have to fundamentally change in order to be safe in a in a COVID nineteen world? And what will those changes have to be? Understand, understanding you're not, you know, <laughs> but I was like, whoa, if you didn't feel good about flying then, how do you feel about right. flying today? Well, I'm, I'm loving not being on a plane three time, four times a week. Uh, that's one of the, the, the upsides, one of the few upsides of, of uh, COVID-19. The, yeah, I didn't like flying for the, the impact it has on the body, um, including not just the spread of infections, but also the potential effect of going through the scanners uh, many times a week. I tried to avoid that. Uh, we've shown that even mild forms of radiation can disrupt the uh, the cell's ability to function over the long run. But in COVID-19 era, uh, you know, let's say it's for the next couple of years, we have to live like this. Uh, my expectation is that airlines will be testing people for high temperature with those guns that we've all seen. Uh, but also people will be required to wear masks before being on the plane. That just has to happen. I think that people will be much more wary of picking up cups and touching surfaces. One of the things that bothers me, uh, I'm not a big germaphobe, but when I see someone come and give me a cup with their hands on top of the, the glass of the cup, <laughs> that's, that's disgusting. And, and that's typically how they give you these drinks. Um, and so I think that also has to change. I think uh, people who work in the airlines have to learn how to deliver food without contaminating it potentially. So with regards to how the world would change, you know, other than social distancing, I'm curious, you know, how have you changed your routine and what do you think will will stick in a COVID-19 world, you know, social distancing makes sense, you know, travel is going to change. Like what, what are the things in your daily routine? You know, if a barista hands you a cup like that, run, uh, <laughs> what else do you think is going to change in your routine? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to be shaking anyone's hands for any, uh, anytime soon. I think that's what we'll all have to do. Uh, we may all revert to Chinese, uh, well, actually Japanese, Customs would be more like it to bow from a distance. That would be great. Um, the other changes I could see are that we, we won't be in large groups for a while. Right? Uh, already we're hearing from uh, the leadership in the U.S. that groups over 50 won't be possible for possibly a couple of years, which means who can go to a sporting event, who can go to a concert is going to be possibly uh, uh, Im impossible for a while. What am I going to change in general? I think one of the, the positives of all of this is that we've learned to stay connected through technology. Uh, and we've learned that it's important to stay connected to our parents and our grandparents. We forget that they get lonely. Um, I used to forget that my dad 
was by himself uh, and not doing that well. But now we talk to him every day. So that that's a big change, and I think that has to continue after this pandemic. Because um, we, we typically have forgotten about the older generations. You know, oh, whatever, they'll take care of themselves. But I think we finally realized, um, A, that they need us, uh, B, that they're susceptible and, and can be can disappear within a few weeks from, from our families. Um, but also that, that you know, we, we care about them more than we thought. We typically didn't spend enough time thinking about them um, and how important they are for society. And so, so much, you mentioned, you know, gathering in large groups again, so much of returning back to normal, whatever that is going to look like, and I think that's unclear, hinges on testing. You know, whether that's the, the the COVID test or the antibody test, and you know, one thing that's 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 pretty clear right now is testing is a is a mess, and that there's so many different tests out there. And just what's your take on, you know, why does this seem a little bit more complicated, and why do, why does it feel like we're really not making progress with regards to to testing? And by we, you mean uh, the United States, I assume? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. I'm, a, I'm American. Uh, I know, I know. But uh, but the when you look at, at other countries, so uh, Middle East, for example. Now, admittedly, they have smaller populations and and more resources, at least more money to, to spend. But they, well, let's look at Germany as a, as a probably a better example. They don't seem as disorganized as the U.S. So what what did we do wrong here? Well, there are a couple of major failures. And part of it, I've argued, on social media is the history of the United States versus other countries that are more cohesive. You know, the United States, we're a series of, uh, of independent states, right? So it's very hard for the federal government to organize us as states, even if, if they were supremely organized, which clearly that they, they were caught off guard. And I'm not going to get into politics. That's not what I do. But it's partly because the United States is is a disjointed country of separate states. That's part of it. The other mistake we made as a country is uh, we were totally not prepared for this. Uh, we, we should have had warehouses of PPE uh, equipment for hospitals, spare ventilators. We should have had vaccine factories ready to go. These are expensive, of course, but now we know how expensive it can be to not be ready. And uh, another thing, it was really disappointing for me as a geneticist is the CDC screwed up the first test. Uh, you might recall that the CDC said to the World Health Organization, we don't need your test, we've got our own. And they developed a more complicated, what's called a PCR test, the test for the nucleic acids of the virus. Turns out the CDC's uh, test wasn't working. Uh, it worked a little bit, but it wasn't reliable and it was overly complicated. Um, and actually, the design of the test uh, was flawed. Um, and a friend of mine who's a geneticist um, who shall remain nameless said to me, my graduate students could have done a better job designing that test. And that set us back as a country about two months. And that, that was the critical period where we could have done a lot more tracing and tracking um, and quarantining of people. Uh, so we lost that. But here's the good news, Jason, is that we are a country that that can innovate faster than any other. And there are other tests that are coming on board. There's a lot more tests coming on. There are uh, four different types of tests that I'm aware of. Uh, they're scaling up into the millions. We'll get there, 
but we were behind the eight ball initially, unfortunately. So I'm curious in terms of the antibody tests, are there any specific out there right now that you think are legitimate and actually are, are accurate or not there yet? Uh, well, what, what frustrates me is that there's been very little science or public dissemination of information about what's working and what isn't. You know, I'll single out the New York Times, but only because that's that's one of the papers I read every day. The New York Times talked about, oh, quote unquote, Chinese tests are un unreliable, or some Chinese tests are unreliable. Well, can you tell us which ones aren't, aren't working? I would love to know, because there are countries and people in this country have Chinese tests. We want to know what can you believe what's in the package uh, in the instructions. Now, I, for example, have some samples from China for an antibody test that I'm told by the company, which is a reputable company, that they're just as reliable as any other test you'll find in the world, which is a sensitivity of about 90%. It's not perfect, still, you know, you're going to miss 10%, but you can take two tests if you want and hopefully have a better chance of detecting it. Uh, but I don't know, actually, the answer to your question. Uh, that's the problem, is we don't know through independent testing which tests are reliable and which ones are not. Um, I just have to go on the possibility that what I read on the instruction instructions are, are actually the truth. Well, you know, if you're if you're one of the the smartest researchers in the world, I know that you know this isn't your your expertise, but you are one smart cookie, and if you don't know, that's a problem for everyone else who's normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, th thanks for saying that. Let me say some, something else that's that's on my mind, which is, and it's a bit of a segue, but you reminded me. So labs like mine could be doing research on COVID-19 right now. There's research we've been doing over five years that works on the human immune system. Uh, we have ways, we think, of improving survival of patients. Uh, we also would, could be testing whether the kits are actually true or not. We could do that in my lab. We've got all the equipment. But we've, we've been banned from entry. I can't even get into my lab if I wanted to. Uh, and I think we've missed an opportunity for many researchers like myself to be able to get to work to help um, instead of sitting at home and, and just feeling rather helpless. And that's all because of the, the work from our order, I'm assuming, or? Right, right. Uh, of course, it's a, a decision at first by the university, but now it's a statewide order. So, sure. I mean, I'd have to appeal to say that my work was essential work, uh, and I probably could do it. But, you know, at, at first I thought, you know, we'll just be home for a little bit and then we'll get back to work. But it, we've lost, you know, three, four months of research, probably, maybe well, more. Well, on the subject of immunity and you know, what, one thing I'm, I'm curious about, something you, know, you see a lot of in the news is reports that, you know, one, men are more likely to die than women. Uh, also, if you've got a pre-existing condition, heart disease, diabetes, you're, you're more vulnerable. Uh, so I'm curious about about that, and then also you also read about, you know, there are healthy people out there who are asymptomatic, and other healthy people that, you know, lose their lives to this terrible virus. So how, how do we make sense of all of this? I've been trying to figure that out. I think that is the ten trillion dollar question, uh, and so it's not an easy thing to solve because we're getting new information all the time, 
Some of it's trustworthy, some of it isn't. Um, and there's a lot of data that I would love to have that we don't have, for example, which is a better correlate of survival. Is it obesity or is it age? Or is it just that older people tend to be obese? Um, that makes age an issue. We don't know it that because the data's not been broken out nicely. So these are all really good questions. The other question that's important is what's happening within the body at a molecular or cellular level? Are there differences in people's immune systems that you could use to predict whether somebody who's young is going to be um, you know, on a ventilator, like someone I know down in Florida who was in his 40s and, and had to go on a ventilator for a couple of weeks? What is it about him that made him susceptible? So we don't know the answer, but some clues have come from looking at what happens to the immune system as we get older. Uh, there's a, a protein that goes by the name of NLRP3, which controls a system called the inflammasome. The inflammasome is the, the key decision point as to whether you need to mount a little bit of an immune response or a massive immune response. And we know that patients who do very poorly are those that have overreacted to the virus. Often the virus is, is on its way, its way out of the body, but the body's still acting as though it's, it's there in abundance. And probably it's because there's a lot of dying cells and the remnants of the viruses are triggering, triggering this inflammasome. But what we see during aging is this inflammasome comes on more and more as we get older and gives us things like heart disease and diabetes as well. So one possibility is that people who have a hypersensitive inflammasome that triggers their body to overreact to the virus are the ones that do most poorly. Hmm. So looking forward, you know, what do you think the, the rest of 2020 will look like given it's you know, Thursday, April 23rd? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you know, what, what do you think the rest of the year will look like? What do you, what do you think we need to do to get back to normal or what, or, or semblance well, of normal clear. or will normal ever return? Well, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm an optimist too. I think normal life will return but it may not be till mid-2021. In the meantime, what's, what I think is going to roll out, but all predictions are dangerous, um, unless you're looking in the rearview mirror, what I think is going to happen is that around early to late June, depending on the state, we'll be allowed to go back to somewhat of a normal life. We, certain jobs will be allowed to go uh, back to normal, so I... I presumably will be able to go back to doing my research. But not every profession, right? If you're part of uh, conferences or sporting events, it's going to be rather rather difficult. Um, and in the middle zone, you've got restaurants and gyms. I think probably we'll see those open up, but it'll be very different, right? Normal de daily life is still going to be you need to wear a mask, you need to stay distant from others, you can't have a meeting with people sitting next to each other. You have to at least put a chair in between uh, you and someone else. Um, so it's not going to be normal for, for a long while, actually. And it's going to have a lasting effect on the psyche of the nation. And what I hope, though, is that the economy will spring back to life. And so experts that I know who are economists are telling me that if we do get back to, to work by June, or at least we're let out of our houses en masse, then the economy will spring back pretty quickly. Not perfectly, but a lot of people will get their jobs back. If it goes beyond that period, three months from um, 
when I was talking about this with my colleagues, then we got an issue. If it goes till July or into August, then the economy will have some rather permanent uh, damage that will take years and possibly, uh, you know, till the end of this decade to finally get over. And so with regards to longevity, you know, you, you are, you are the expert and I am curious, you know, has COVID-19 changed your views on longevity? Oh, I think what it's done for all of us is made us realize that we're all mortal. If, if any of us could potentially die by next week. Uh, so that's the first thing, uh, particularly for people who are 50 years old uh, and older, like myself, I'm now 50. Uh, it's made us realize that we can't take our health for granted. It's also made us realize that our health is the most important thing that we possess, especially as we get older, and that there's never been a better time to get into shape, even when we're young, so that by the time we're 60, 70, 80, uh, we won't succumb to these kind of infections that no doubt will be coming back again. Well, do you think, you know, given the connection between, you know, the, for, for the most part, I know I'm generalizing and we're still learning, but I, I think it's fair to say that there's a correlation between the, the health of someone and, and how they, you know, and how the outcomes differ with regards to COVID that people will start really focusing on taking care of themselves. We talked about diabetes, heart disease, you know, we've got a problem here in America. Like, do you think that you know, overall health and wellness comes to the forefront in terms of, for people where, you know, maybe it wasn't. Well, absolutely. The, the biggest risk factor uh, in middle-aged people is obesity. Um, even if they don't have diabetes, it's a major risk factor. And, and probably what's going on, in my scientific opinion, is that the more obese you are, the more inflammation you have to begin with. And so that inflammasome is unable to switch itself off. So yeah, you're right that that in middle age you could forget about obesity because it it was always oh in the future I might get heart disease in the future I might get diabetes, uh, but now we realise that even if you're young and obese it predisposes to to dying from things like infection. So I think that and I've seen this I don't just think it I've witnessed that most people now are taking their health much more seriously. Uh, gym equipment sold out. The United States, for example, um, the number of people who pay attention to experts like Rhonda Patrick has shot up dramatically. And I think that's because people are realizing that your health matters, not just for decades in the future, but right now. So my last question, let's, let's say that uh, the CDC and Harvard and Fauci all of a sudden call you and say, David, we need your help. We're opening up the lab. What's the first thing you would want to dig into? Or what's the first piece of data or information you would say, I want to know about this or send me this. I'm curious, like, how, what's the first thing you would do if you got back into your lab? Uh, right. Well, we've planned this out. We're ready to go. Uh, so we, we do animal research. Uh, so the first animal study that I would do would be um, um, use mice to see if we can uh, prevent them from developing severe COVID-19. There are mice that you have been engineered to be able to do that. And what we have as a tool in our toolbox in my lab is the ability to raise NAD levels in the body. NAD is this chemical we've talked about 
that boosts the body's defense defenses against chronic age-related diseases, but also infections as well. And there's a lot of evidence coming out from animals and from human studies now. There was a recent study a few days ago from Charlie Brenner that the virus is depleting the body's NAD levels. That does two bad things to the body. One is that the immune system is not functioning very well and be, can actually lead to this hyperimmune cytokine storm. And the second is if you don't have a lot of NAD, you don't have a lot of energy. NAD is required for our bodies to make ATP, which is the chemical form of energy that we use. So it's a double whammy. Um, and there's probably other issues as well, such as the sirtuins, which are the protectors of our body that we study. They need NAD as well. So you're not fighting against uh, the infection as well. So I, but long story short, I would go in and test that hypothesis immediately. But also, you know, I can hear people thinking, well, David, that's not much use because people are dying right now. Uh, well, it's true. So that's why I'm involved in working with a couple of hospitals to test whether the drugs that I've been helping develop that raise NAD to treat rare diseases could be used in patients right now to alleviate their symptoms and also increase survival. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for all that you do and for making time for us in this crazy COVID-19 world. So thank you. Thanks, Jason. This has been great. Keep doing what you're doing too. I appreciate it.